0: Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR and this week we're going to be looking at the situation at the Belarusian border and examining how migration is being turned into a weapon in geopolitics. I'm very happy to have an all-star cast to help us make sense of this this morning. We are talking to Pavel Slunkin, who is an ECFR visiting fellow, currently sitting in Ukraine, in Lviv, even though he's a, an expert on Belarus, and Pavel Cerka, who is an ECFR policy fellow and an expert on Poland, though he's sitting in France. Thank you very much, both of you, for, for joining me. And later in the podcast, we will also talk to Kelly Greenhill, who is the 2021 Leverhulme Trust visiting professor at SOAS as well as a professor at Tufts University and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology who wrote a very influential book back in 2010 called Weapons of Mass Migration, Forced Displacement, Coercion and Foreign Policy. So before we go to Kelly to tell us a bit more about this idea of weaponizing migration let's start with the border in Belarus. Pavel Slunkin, why don't you tell us about that? What is the situation along the border? How did we get here?
1: What we must remember that the migration crisis at the borders of the EU has not arisen out of nowhere. It's a direct consequence of the political crisis that has been going on in Valerie since last summer. And this is not the first time that Lukashenko has been under European sanctions. But this is the first time when his position is so difficult. Earlier, when after he rigged elections and mass protests, he could crack down on civil society for a year, then regain his sense of control and could once again start sending positive signals to the European Union, for example, releasing political prisoners or significantly reduce the scope of repressions inside the country, and then proposing gradually restore a so-called mutually beneficial dialogue. But now his position is so difficult and the atmosphere and the relations with the West is so tense that he cannot really allow this. He he doesn't want to retreat. On the one hand, because he is um, afraid that any forms of real liberalization in Belarus may be perceived by Belarusians who oppose him as a sign of weakness, as a concession to the European Union. And this could provoke a new wave of street protests. And the West uh, could think that sanctions really effective, uh, so they should continue. And this is, of course, what Lukashenko would like to avoid. Uh, on the other hand, his dependence on Moscow is becoming deeper and deeper, and he's very uncomfortable with it. And therefore, for Lukashenko, this artificial migration crisis is a method of forcing the EU to engage in dialogue with him to enter in a dialogue with the person who the EU itself has been calling an illegitimate ruler. Uh, So Lukashenko is changing the tactics. He is now escalating the situation and hoping that the European Union will back down. Likewise, the EU did it in the case with Erdogan's blackmail or in the recent conflict between Morocco and Spain. And secondly, for Lukashenko, this is also a very... Effective mechanism for switching international attention or European Union's attention. If a year ago, the EU demanded new elections in Belarus and the release of all political prisoners. Now we focus and now even we are recording the podcast about migration crisis, ensuring the safety of EU citizens and the EU borders. For Lukashenko, this topic is much more comfortable because here the field for maneuver and concessions for the EU is much wider. And even local propaganda from the Belarusian TV says it's very clearly. European politicians only need to make one call to Belarus, to the president of Belarus, and ask him for help. And the crisis will be resolved in one day. So this is like the, the reason why they are doing all this.
0: But can you explain a bit more exactly what's happening? Because, you know, Turkey and Morocco are very different from Belarus in that they're kind of natural transit points for, for people escaping from the Middle East. Syria and Turkey are very close to each other. There were three million Syrians who sought sanctuary in Turkey. Um, and, you know, Turkey was in a sort of natural position to to manage its borders with Greece and with other countries. The same is, is obviously true with uh, with Morocco is that uh, you know the 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 sea um, between Morocco and Spain is is you know is only um, a few kilometers wide mm-hmm. and you have a, a sort of natural pressure but what happened here in this artificially engineered migration crisis is, is quite different it was the can you tell us a bit more about how these migrants ended up in Belarus what kinds of things the the Belarusian authorities did to encourage them to come along? How many people are actually there? How they're being kind of managed? Why did they come?
1: Last time I participated in the CFR's podcast was about this Ryanair incident. Remember when the Belarusian government landed their European plane in Belarus and detained their opposition journalists? Uh, right after this, the European Union imposed a new package, the fourth package of sanctions against uh, the Belarusian government, against the Lukashenko's regime. And Lukashenko promised to answer, uh, and he promised to put a blind eye on the migration, on the migrants who come to the European Union, who want to uh, cross the border, saying that I wouldn't uh, now spend my money on securing your borders. So it's now your problem. But frankly, we have never been Belarus has never been a source of uh, illegal migration. Not just because the border guards have been working efficiently, but because just this is a very unusual way how to get to the European Union. But then he decided to create it artificially. So Belarusian government opened the new air flights uh, from the Middle East countries, five uh, per week from Iraq with hundreds of people on board every day. And then they meet these people, they give visas to them, uh, and special services guide them to to the border with Lithuania and Poland.
0: We're now very privileged to talk to Kelly Greenhill, who is one of the world's leading experts on the idea of turning migration into a weapon. Kelly, can you tell us a bit more about the background to this episode? What's actually going on? What is coercive engineered migration.
2: Great to be here, Mark. Uh, The weaponization of cross-border population movements as instruments of both domestic and foreign policy has had a long and consequential history. Uh, Four different variants of this phenomenon, which I refer to broadly as strategic engineered migration, and these four variants differ in the motivations that drive them as well as the objectives for which they are undertaken. The first a type is dispossessive engineered migrations, and they are those in which the principal objective is the appropriation of the territory or the property of another group or group, or the elimination of that group as a threat to the ethnic, political, or economic dominance of those engineering the outmigration. And this category includes what is commonly you know, known as ethnic cleansing. The second uh, variant of strategic engineered migration is militarized engineered migrations and they are those that are conducted usually in the context of armed conflict to gain military advantage against an adversary or to enhance one's own a military force structure capabilities. Um, some examples would be by recruiting those who are displaced or appropriating their resources. The third variant of strategic engineered migration is exportive engineered migrations, and they are those that are engineered either to fortify a domestic political position, say by expelling political dissidents, or to uh, uh humiliate or destabilize the target, uh, usually foreign governments. And the final variant is uh, what I refer to as coercive engineer migrations, and th- they are those that are deliberately created or manipulated in order to induce or uh, extract political, military and or economic concessions from a target state or states. In the case of Belarus in particular, uh, at least the evidence I've seen, the open source evidence suggests that what we're seeing is a case of exportive engineered migration in that Lukashenko is reportedly you know, retaliating against the EU, trying to punish the EU uh, for its criticism of his regime and uh, in some, um, the reportage for newly imposed sanctions. There are others who have claimed that Belarus has more expansive aims and actually seeks to destabilize the EU. Now, while evidence remains somewhat sketchy, um, still others have posited that Lukashenko simultaneously is aiming to coerce the EU into providing some assistance with managing irregular migration along the along the EU's external borders. Now, um, there's said, far less direct evidence of um, coercion, but certainly possible. And it wouldn't be the first time that Lukashenko has attempted to coerce the EU member states. On several occasions in the early 2000s, Lukashenko did threaten to flood the EU with uh, migrants and refugees if um, the bloc failed to concede, uh, to that point, a variety of largely financial demands. And I talk about those cases in my book. As noted in Weapons of Mass Migration, Uh, Strategic engineered migration is not a new phenomenon. It's um, unfortunately a strikingly common phenomenon. Uh, In the case of coercion or coercive uses alone, I've identified well over 75 cases uh, simply since the advent of the 1951 Refugee Convention, or if you will, on average, uh, at least one attempted case per year. And if one tallies up cases of you know, all four variants of strategic engine migration, the numbers of these um, events are tragically far, far greater. Indeed, it's a fair bet that at any given time, somewhere in the world, uh, migrants and our refugees are being instrumentally manipulated and exploited in the service of political, military um, or economic uh, objectives.
0: There are several thousand people now on the borders at the moment, and there are Barbed wire fences being erected. Uh, there's talk about there's a state of emergency in Lithuania and in Poland alongside the border. Uh, Pavel, you are following the kind of reaction in in Poland uh, and in the EU. How successful has has Lukashenko been so far? What is the reaction in Poland?
3: Just to add on on Pavel's previous point. Uh, it was not just that uh, Belarusian authorities gave visas to those people who were willing to risk their life and security just to get to the European Union. The, those people also had to pay apparently plenty of money, something like $2.5,000 uh, per person. And this is human trafficking. Then those people who are whose number is estimated as up to... Uh, 10,000 uh, are getting to the border with Poland with the help of the Belarusian. Um, um, but then let's move to the other side of the border where. Polish uh, government has imposed um, a state of emergency in those uh, border zones when when this human trafficking is taking place, and uh, has sent plenty of of, of army, something like uh, fifteen thousand troops uh, to ensure that those that there is like, security in those zones. But unfortunately, we we are relying on the information coming from the government uh, and authorities on this issue because neither the NGOs nor the nor journalists uh, can access those uh, zones where there is a state of emergency. We do know that uh, something like 1.5 up to 2,000 people have been detained. They are waiting in the centers for foreigners in Poland. Um, I believe that they can ask for asylum if they want. Still, what is the most uh, worrying is that uh, a couple of weeks ago, Poland has adopted a new law, which is illegal from the point of view of the 1951 Geneva Convention, which allows pushbacks. And we have some reports, despite the fact that NGOs cannot be uh, officially in those zones, saying that uh, uh, the Polish uh, border um, officers have have engaged in the pushback procedures, meaning they were pushing back the the migrants who have crossed the border, pushing them back to the Belarusian side. And since it's a period of the year where when it's already very cold in this ter- territory, there have already been a dozen of people who who died, mostly due to hypothermia. You ask me whether. Lukashenko's strategy has worked uh, from t- looking at, at it from the Polish perspective. And, and of course this depends on what actually was, was Lukashenko's goal. If we accept that uh, the goal was to push uh, Europe into negotiation, then it hasn't worked so far. And actually he he didn't actually, uh, even succeed uh, in uh, dividing Europe or dividing Poland because what, what he has succeeded in is strengthening the Polish government right now uh, who can use the strategy of rallying around the flag and uh, positioning itself as as a guardian of security for the Polish population. But it actually, uh, as we saw today uh, with the meeting between uh, Charles Michel and Prime Minister of Poland, uh, Mateusz Morawiecki, it has pushed Poland's Polish government and the European Union authorities to uh, cl- closer together and uh, uh, of course uh, there are disagreements still even on this issue between between the two but uh, but at least uh, uh, there has been a message uh, clear uh, today that uh, that Europe uh, will uh, help or support Poland in solving this uh, issue still i i feel that uh, lukashenko has been successful at least in one respect, and I've, I believe that this is not just—it was not just his goal, but also Putin's goal, because the, all of this wouldn't happen if it uh, was not supported uh, by Moscow. I, and the, 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 their success was in showing that this whole Europe, with its lofty messages about human rights, humanitarianism, etc., that doesn't matter—that Europe is no better than uh, than all the rest. And the fact that Polish uh, officers were engaged in those push can be presented by Lukashenko and prove that Europe is no better.
0: Well, let's talk a bit more about that and about what Lukashenko wants. But before we do that, can I just ask you one more question? Because, you know, Poland and the EU have been going through a, a difficult phase recently. And the Poland is, in fact, the home of Frontex, which is the EU border agency, but they have stopped it from going into the, into the territory. Is that Because they're worried about refoulement and these these, um, breaches of international law.
3: This is surely one of the reasons. If Frontex were there, then Poland would not be able to do any pushback. It would have to accept uh, migrants and uh, do the asylum procedures as it should normally do. But another reason is that uh, with Frontex there, Polish government, Polish authorities would no longer uh, be able to present themselves as being uh, in control of the situation, because they would be sharing that control with an EU uh, agency. And um, the political context in Poland is is very important. Uh, the ruling law and justice party didn't have the best time, to, to say the least. Uh, uh, re- recently, it was going down in the opinion polls for, for them, and we also know it from, from leaked messages uh, uh, among among polish uh, officials the belarus crisis is kind of an opportunity to, to show that they are in uh, in control to to strengthen okay. the message of sovereignty but national sovereignty not european
0: sovereignty sure. but pavel and i'd like to go to the other pavel in a second but there are so few of these migrants and they're clearly not really coming you know as a kind of wave like in 2015 how come this is leading to a sense in poland that there are barbarians at the gate and that poland could be overrun
3: I think that the media, the videos and photos uh, published on on the media succeed in in, in provoking such a panic because we can see plenty of people of a different origin than the one that people in this uh, part of Poland and in Belarus are used to going apparently to the Polish border. This can provoke Threat and people living in the uh, by the Polish-Belarusian uh, border, which normally is a very peaceful place, are surely not used to having this kind of of, of a of a chaos uh, by, by by their door. All
0: right, Pavel Slunkin, I'd like to talk a bit more about Lukashenko and to go to some of the things that you said earlier about about how the situation could escalate. But before we do that, I mean, this is a situation where there are lots of desperate people who've been tricked into. <laughs> into becoming pawns in this geopolitical game, how do you think we can solve the, the humanitarian situation or at least improve it um, so that more people don't lose their lives? Well, it's it's,
1: it's a very important and, and a very difficult question. Frankly, I don't know because Lukashenko is expecting that the European Union would build uh, the camps uh, and then he will be sending more and more and more people, expecting that uh, the European Union would step back and have to call him and ask him for for his help, uh, as happened uh, as you already mentioned with Erdogan. But also it, we should we should remember that the migration crisis didn't begin uh, two days ago. It has been going on for more than four months. And first, the tactics uh, of Lithuania and Poland and Latvia was keeping letting these uh, people uh, enter the country and then concentrate them in in, in this uh, in this refugee camps. But then they changed the tactics because they they can't really afford you know, to keep them all because the the number has been increasing all the time. But what was the response to Lukashenko by their European Union and NATO? Uh, after Lukashenko triggered this crisis or created this crisis uh, on their borders? Uh, what what was the answer he received from uh, European and NATO capitals? Often, uh, European politicians voice their concerns on Twitter. But the problem is that Lukashenko doesn't use Twitter. Uh, he doesn't understand the language of compromise. He respects strong opponents, strong answers from them. And that's why he clearly knows where Putin's red lines are, and that's why he never breaks them. And with the European Union, he can't can't afford it because the EU's response to all the lawlessness that has been happening in Belarus since last year was half-hearted. And this instills in Lukashenko's sense of confidence in his impunity. That's why I can't maybe probably advise what the EU should do, especially in this humanitarian aspect. I'm not a specialist here, but I can tell you what not to do. I think that making concessions to a blackmailer is a very bad idea because blackmail, even if it stops for a while, may return again in the future, and it's also important to remember that uh, EU's response must be adequate to what is happening. Such things uh, shouldn't be tolerated. Uh, it's important that the addressee of this answer, Lukashenko, uh, understands that such a tactic will not work even in the future, even if he increases the, significantly the number of migrants, and that the price for him personally will be very expensive. And also, this answer shouldn't be postponed in time, as was the case with this fourth package of sanctions, which in fact doesn't yet have any impact on the Belarusian economy because they don't yet function even. And this allows the Belarusian government to find ways to bypass the sanctions. And therefore, I would say the EU decision should enter into force immediately or at least very soon. And the third point, which is very important, we should all the time remember that even if these migrants break the laws, even if they cross the borders illegally, we are still talking about people. And this is what we all the time should take in mind.
0: So, Pavel, why don't we let you have the last word? What do you think the EU should do? Sorry, other Pavel, Pavel Terka. Yeah,
3: I I think that the... There are two things: what the EU should do about the uh, border crisis, and what the EU should do about Lukashenko. These are slightly different things. And about about the border, I think that we should consider building a wall or a fence, uh, which would make illegal crossing of the of the border more difficult. This is about border control. But at the same time, Europe should uh, pressure on, on the Polish government to, to accept Frontex on the border and also to not to engage in pushbacks. Poland should not use the controversial law that it ad- adopted a couple of weeks ago. And we shouldn't engage in panic because the panic is what uh, Lukashenko and Putin want here. But then the separate issue is what the EU does about uh, Lukashenko. And we need to remember that it all started with the falsified elections last year, plus the terror that uh, that Lukashenko imposed in his country. I am in favor of economic sanctions and not just personal, personal sanctions. Some of those have been already uh, introduced uh, in the last uh, package in June, but they are full of loopholes. They are not serious at all. And I am concerned that currently, uh, with this border crisis, uh, we have the discussion about Europe being quicker in imposing another round of sanctions on Belarus, but but this again would mostly be personal sanctions on on persons and uh, entities and there is no serious discussion About uh, deploying a maximum economic pressure on the Belarusian regime, I am in favor of of considering such an option because what would
0: the what would the goal be? I mean, you know, typically sanctions are effective where you have limited objectives and they're very clear, (laughs) or you know, they're most effective when you don't when you don't actually use them when you're actually using the threat of sanctions to get people to do something. It's quite obvious that we don't like um, Lukashenko that he. you know, is uh, still seen as, as Europe's last dictator, though there's a bit more competition now maybe there was when that term was first um, coined to describe him. But what actually do you think we should link the sanctions to? Should it be about, you know, stopping what he's doing on the border? Should it be about releasing people from prison? Should it be about... um you know having a recount the elections what do you think is a realistic ask
3: the current sanctions are already linked to those issues Uh, so to the uh, political prisoners issues but also right now uh, the new round of sanctions will will include this element of people and entities who facilitate illegal crossing of the external borders of a member state Uh, but but the goal for me should be to not just to punish uh, Lukashenko but also to make him costly increasingly costly to Moscow so uh, we should consider Sanctioning not just Belarusian entities, but also those Russian entities that are uh, involved, and we know which of those are these. And also, uh, we should consider sanctioning those countries or entities that are helping uh, Lukashenko with this uh, human trafficking right now. So we talk about sanctioning not just uh, uh, Belarusian airlines, but also airlines of other countries. And a nuclear option would be even to sanction Turkey Airlines, uh, who apparently have also been engaged. Uh, But I'm talking also about, about economic sanctions on Belarus, which we shouldn't forget, as an option, which many people in Belarus are would accept uh, and we know it because there are also some public opinion polling done uh, and they would accept it because street protests are not no longer an option in the country and therefore people are strongly relying on the external pressure unfortunately this message is not properly heard in in Europe
0: okay well we will watch this situation and we we'll, might come back to it again but i think we've run out of time on this podcast there's one thing left to do for us and that's our bookshelf segment What's on your bookshelf at the moment, Pavel Slunkin?
1: I was thinking about recommending something special, and I was thought that maybe a memoir but Madam Secretary by Madeleine Albright, who was both respected in the uh, post ussr and in the USSR countries like a strong lady, but at the same time she was migrant herself. So my recommendation is a memoir Madam Secretary. Okay, what about you?
0: Pavel Cerka.
3: Yeah, my desk is covered with books about French politics because I'm preparing for the French presidential elections. But I would like to recommend two studies which are useful for understanding the context of of, of Belarusian politics, like right now. So one is by Chatham House, uh, and this is the the last round of the public opinion polling uh, Belarus Belarusians' view. On the political crisis. And secondly, there is a Warsaw think tank Centre for Social and Economic Research case. They published a very interesting study recently on EU sanctions on Belarus uh, as an effective policy tool. We can disagree with those studies, but they're a good, good read uh, for, for a discussion.
0: Okay, and my recommendation something which I haven't managed to, to read yet, but I haven't even managed to get it because it's only come out in Canada, but it will apparently be available as an ebook where I'm sitting at the moment on the 11th of November. So hopefully by the time you listen to it, it will have landed in my Kindle. It's a book by Michael Ignatieff called On Constellation, Finding Solace in Dark Times. I think we all need a bit of consolation in these difficult moments. So um, I'm very much looking forward to it. We will put links up to all the publications we mentioned on our website, ecfr.eu slash podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please do let other people know about it on social media and above all, by giving us a positive review and a five-star rating on whatever platform you've used to download this podcast on. But for now, from Pavel Slunkin, Pavel Tserka, Kelly Greenhill, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of this podcast is Lucy Huppenthal and our editor is Marlene Riedl.